As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Hello, my name is Tim Wyatt and you're listening to another episode of Matters of Life and Death, a podcast where I speak with my dad, the doctor, professor of ethics and writer John Wyatt, about how Christians can think more deeply on issues in science, medicine, technology, culture and faith. Today's episode is a little hard to sum up actually. We begin by reflecting on the recent series of scandals around abusive church leaders, before going on to discuss how contemporary culture thinks about sex and power and in particular how these things are exploited in all human relationships. And then we consider to what extent Christians should become as suspicious of our leaders and their relationships as it seems wider society already is. Hi John, uh, good to speak to you again um, for another Matters of Life and Death podcast. Um, this week uh, we wanted to start by actually talking about another podcast we've both been listening to and enjoying recently, uh, which I think some of our listeners probably are aware of as well, but uh, it's it's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, and it's, um, it's a fascinating podcast by the American magazine Christianity Today. Uh, it's a long series, uh, a long in-depth investigation into uh, the kind of famous or maybe infamous uh, church network Mars Hill, which was led by uh, the pastor Mark Driscoll um, and then kind of collapsed in acrimony and scandal about seven or so years ago. Um, but I think what we've found interesting about it, John, I'm interested to hear what you think, is that beyond the immediate and interesting kind of story of Mars Hill and Mark Driscoll, it's really illuminating on some quite recent evangelical history pulled out themes around narcissistic leadership and toxic church culture, celebrity Christianity, but also around um, the power imbalances around kind of toxic leadership. What what stood out for you when you've been listening? Yeah, I, um, you put me in touch with this um, podcast, Tim, and I must say I've found it a very gripping uh, series. It's very well produced and it really tells the story of the Mars Hill Church and, and Mark Driscoll and uh, the role that he played, and uh, it's a fascinating story, and, and um, but it does bring out a lot of uh, very important and interesting themes um, about Christian leadership, and and in particular about the abuse of power, and and the way that um, it's a bit of a paradox, isn't it? Because you know traditionally it was the Catholic Church which focused power in the the person of the priest. And one of the whole um, emphases of the Reformation was that it took that power away 
from a man in this special privileged position uh, in the priestly role and put much greater emphasis both on the importance of the word of God but also on the community together on, on body life and isn't it interesting that that it's actually these sort of hyper-reformed uh, groups, uh, some of them like Mark Driscoll's uh, church, who, who have reinstated this sort of the centrality of the powerful man as, as, the, as the leader of the, of the church. Yeah, yeah, that's actually, um, it's really interesting because I think if you, if you wind the clock back maybe 10 or 15 years ago, as the kind of whole church was, was waking up to the tragic um, like breadth of the, of the abuse scandal in the Catholic church, um, in lots of countries, you saw sometimes, I think, uh, some Protestants who were slightly smug or even maybe sneering at, at the scandals and suggesting it was all it was all in part a result of um, Catholic theology or church practice. You know, having a, a single celibate priest as the as the all powerful head of a congregation, hierarchies and ecclesiologies and things like that. And I think um, a sad irony. <laughs> of the last three or four or five years is is that is that we've seen that that kind of smugness from from protestants from evangelicals uh is completely misplaced because every tribe and every flavor of evangelicalism has seen one of its own leaders its own kind of revered figureheads uh exposed as an as an abuser of power um you know people will know the names there's a long litany of them and and mark driscoll is sadly just just one of many yes indeed and and i think um, it has been an extraordinary period, hasn't it, of of a of, of a of a constant litany of of prominent Christian leaders who some kind of really serious allegations of of either sexual misconduct or of of abuse of power or, or sometimes a toxic combination of the two of sex and power. Yeah, I mean we've got um, Jonathan Fletcher, who is this incredibly prominent leader in the conservative evangelical Anglican world, um, long-time uh, vicar at Emmanuel Wimbledon in South London. Um, last year, it was, it, it was Ravi Zacharias, um, who was this internationally famous uh, evangelist who was revealed as prominent sexual abuser and involved in, in much sexual misconduct. Uh, you had John Smythe, who was um, heavily uh, involved in the UN Trust youth camps, who it, it was it's been revealed that he um would regularly and sadistically beat uh young young men uh in his garden shed um steve timmis from the crowded house uh kind of non-denominational evangelical independent evangelical movement in in sheffield um he was he was removed over um, allegations of spiritual abuse uh, a few years ago um people would have heard of the name of jean vanier who's a internationally famous and renowned um, church leader and theologian uh, who founded the the Larsh movement of of homes for those with learning difficulties uh, and those without living side by side. Um, I mean, to be honest, it just, it becomes, I mean, I kind of feel, I think others do as well, quite, quite battered and quite bruised by all of this. I mean, even if these are people I never personally knew, but you just sometimes feel like we're just kind of stealing ourselves for the next beloved and respected Christian leader to be exposed as someone completely different to who, who they said they were. Yes, I think that's right. And I think it is incredibly corrosive, isn't it? Because you find yourself looking at prominent names in the 
in the Christian world, either of the present or the past, and saying you wonder, you know, what what else? Is it possible that there's some new scandal is about to break at any moment? And so that leads to a to a sense of suspicion, and and a, a failure to trust. And and then the the question comes: Well, how should we respond to this? And and certainly, I've been quite troubled by people who have said that perhaps the only response is that we just have to tell everyone, look, we're all fallen. You know, even our leaders, they're all fallen people. They're all deeply sinful. And therefore, you can't trust anybody. You know, you simply have to be aware that abuse and uh, abuse of power and sexual misconduct and so on is is everywhere. And therefore, you do, we, we just can't trust anybody. Yeah, and I mean, to be honest, that does actually really kind of chime true for me too in, in many ways. I mean, as part of, as part of my old um, day job, as it were, I, I used to spend a lot of time writing stories, news stories about the latest abuse scandals in church. And I even interviewed several um, victims of, of, of clerical sex abuse. And it really does kind of wear you down to the point where it kind of feels like the safest option is to almost um, presume that nobody nobody is safe um everyone is potentially guilty until proven innocent in some kind of perverse mirror image of how that's kind of normally supposed to work um because it just it just feels too risky to to say um oh i'm sure that person is is good because the very next day who knows they could be exposed or does something really really bad yes and and what i'm particularly interested in is what this does to friendship and in particular to intergenerational friendship to friendships between older men and and younger men between older women and younger men and 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 so on um because these kind of relationships they're called Paul Timothy relationships uh, of both genders uh have always been at the sort of bedrock of of Christian uh, understanding and also you know of Christian practice that um I've been reading some of the letters of John Newton and um, William Wilberforce and, and, and that era. And what, what's plain is that they had this very rich network of friendships, which were incredibly significant, but which went right across the generations and across the sexes. I mean, Newton was having close relationships with young women, with young men, with older men, with older women. Um, and uh, it, it was seen as absolutely central to what it meant to, to, to follow Christ, to have these deep, intimate friendships. And yet, you know, when I hear that, or I think when a, a lot of people hear that, um, their hackles will, will start to raise. Uh, and we'll be like, oh, John, John Newton, famous Christian leader, had close relationships, close friendships with younger women. That, that doesn't seem right. That, that doesn't seem wise. There's something suspect about that. Yeah, well, I think it's helpful just to step backwards. I've been thinking about this a lot because I'm, I'm trying to write a book on friendship uh, and, and actually deal with these issues, both with uh, some of the abuse of friendships that, that have become very prominent, but also trying to ask, you know, what's the wider cultural context? How can we understand this? And also, how can we then think positively, build up healthy, uh, life-transforming friendships? And, and I found it's very helpful to think about the concept of what's been called the hermeneutic of suspicion. 
Uh, hermeneutics, of course, is a uh, refer- refers really to the interpretation of manuscripts, of texts, uh, when we talk about biblical hermeneutics and so on. And the hermeneutics of suspicion starts as a, as a kind of literary uh, process, a way of, in other words, when you read a text, an ancient historical text, for instance, you don't just take it at first value, at faith's value. You, you, you apply the hermeneutic of suspicion. You say, I wonder why the author wrote it that way. I wonder what he was trying to hide. I wonder if there's another interpretation. It's that kind of hermeneutic of suspicion. But then the idea comes that we, we apply this in the whole of life. It's not just when we read a historical text, but it's we apply the hermeneutic of suspicion to relationships. So we see... Uh, as you say, we, we hear about a relationship between an older man and a younger woman who's not his wife. And immediately the hermeneutic of suspicion says, mm, I wonder what was going on there. I, you know, was it sexual or was it abusive? Was, was there some kind of uh, inappropriate behaviour going on there? It doesn't sound right. And, and, and what, what, where, where, does that, where do you think that kind of comes from? Where does this hermeneutic of suspicion come from? Where are its roots? Um, why have we become so suspicious and, uh, and and act like that when when we hear about these kind of, of relationships? Well, it's it's an interesting process to try and uncover this because it's so universal now that we almost don't think about it. I mean, it's just it's there in the knee jerk reaction. But I think many people think we can trace it back to some of the very formative. Uh, influences in in western thinking and western civilization and i mean the basic idea behind the hermeneutic of suspicion is that all relationships are basically motivated by either sex or power or some combination of the two that's basically what drives relationships and therefore in order to understand a relationship we've got to try and dig out what's driving this it's either sex or power so and and many people then trace that to um, some very prominent thinkers uh, whose thinking has penetrated from the academy and down into into uh, everyday life and of course one of the most obvious ones is Sigmund Freud so a lot of people will have will have heard that name and and know that he's something to do with um, psychology or or psychiatry. Uh, but could you explain a little bit about her, who Freud was and and how he came up with this idea that sex and power were at, were at the root of um, all relationships? Yeah, Freud is a, is, is a sort of fascinating character because he's a very respectable uh, neurologist. He's trained as a as a doctor, but he's He's, he's prides himself on being the cutting edge of, of, of science. Uh, but he develops a, a, a kind of novel approach to, to his patients. He's, he's, he's doing private practice uh, in, in Vienna. And uh, he has the idea that instead of um, just examining patients and then prescribing medication, he's actually going to listen to them. And so he develops this technique. He 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 has a he he has a shares long. In fact, interestingly, the um, the Freud Museum is is present in North London still, and you can go and visit it. And I've actually seen the the original shares long, which is there in his study. And what he did was he he got the patient to lie down on the on the shares long in a darkened room, and he was up by the head end, out of the patient's view, 
with a notepad and he, he simply asked the patient to talk about their past without interrupting them and he would just get them to just recall everything they could remember from their past and he just took notes and uh, he his patients had neurological symptoms particularly hysteria and neurosis they were dominated by anxiety or sometimes strange uh, symptoms and uh, and what he found to his astonishment as these highly respectable middle class people from Vienna talked about their past is that many of them talked about sexual experiences they had as a child sometimes as a very young child and uh, initially he he developed the theory that it was some kind of early sexual experience that was the cause of their neurotic symptoms which was a completely new idea and he he published or presented some papers where he put forward this hypothesis um, and the, suggesting that these these uh, patients had actually been abused by some adults um, as, when they were young children um, but not surprisingly it caused a bit of a stir I imagine in, uh, <laughs> in early 19th 20th century Vienna absolutely you can just imagine the response the horrified response from the respectable burghers of Vienna that here was this doctor suggesting that that, that some of their precious children from middle-class homes were, were being subject to abuse from adults both male and female and and Freud went back following this rough reception of his ideas and reinterpreted that actually what was going on was that it was all fantasy that these and that he came to the conclusion that these were all invented incidents fantastic incidents that the patient had invented and he therefore concluded that infantile sexual fantasy was an extremely important part a motivating part of the um, of the way of, of of how all children developed so he's basically saying is that there are, rather than genuine experiences what his par- patients are recounting to him are of their brain making up stories about these sexual experiences and he concluded that, th- that these were kind of normal healthy positive parts of how children kind of develop into into adults yeah and, and in fact that infants were highly sexual beings again you know this caused out outrage amongst the respectable burghers uh, of Vienna but what he was saying is that infant who looks so innocent uh, sucking quietly on the breast is actually filled with with sexual longing and is developing pleasure they're motivated by libido and you know and therefore he came up with all these ideas male infants wanted to possess their mothers and kill their fathers and female infants were were haunted by penis envy and 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 neurosis and mental illness occurs because of these conflicts which are all uh, created in these uh, in these in in, in in these infants and this idea despite being controversial at first gradually becomes accepted does it, the consensus well it's interesting that he uh, freud compla- uh, claimed that this was all entirely scientific based on on you know strong scientific evidence in fact when psychologists later on tried to test these freudian theories by looking for scientific evidence to support it by and large the evidence just hasn't been found it just isn't there so from a scientific psychology and child development point of view these freudian theories by and large have have been dismissed but they've turned out to be immensely influential 
in psychoanalysis and in and then through psychoanalysis into the general ideas in 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 general culture so you're saying this idea that that humans are driven by poor, poorly understood sexual drives and impulses which which colors every relationship we have from from childhood onwards it has no scientific basis but but has kind of been smuggled into the culture nonetheless yes that's right and I- I don't want to say it has absolutely no scientific basis, but it certainly doesn't have the dominant scientific evidence that Freud claimed. But these ideas have become very common. And very interestingly, you know, I've gone back and read a bit of Freud, and and, and, and Freud is quite over that he has a kind of hydraulic metaphor. Because, of course, the, the late 19th century was the time when steam engines were very, very... There was the most powerful uh, machines around... And, and Freud conceives of libido as as this as driving the engine of 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 the, of the psyche. You know that the energy the is is under the is like the steam that's driving the engine, and then it's being constrained and repressed by other forces. And the and and sometimes this whole sort of steam, the libido bursts out with catastrophic consequences. And 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 in order to be a healthy person you've got to sort of constrain and sublimate the libido you've got to direct it in healthy areas so like a safety valve you know to remove this excess energy that's building up inside this is pure hydraulics and it's interesting of course that modern understanding of the way the nervous system is not at all like that at all it's much more like uh, information processing and uh, communication and much more like a computer than like a, a steam engine so, so that's what you think potentially part of the kind of genesis of this idea, the suspicious idea that behind lots of supposedly normal um, pl- platonic friendships and relationships might actually be lots of kind of strange, complex sexual ideas and longings. Um, what, what about power? Yeah, just before we get on power, just, just two quick points. One is that the whole point that Freud says is that it's all concealed. You know, things which appear to be completely respectable... An, an, an innocent behaviour is actually all motivated by sex, but it's cleverly concealed, and that's why you have to have the hermeneutic of suspicion. You've got to peel it away. And of course, that's what psychoanalysis was supposed to do. But but the other little poignant point I want to make, and that is that uh, 70 years later, and we're now talking the 1960s, 1970s, paediatricians uh, like myself were starting to become aware of the fact that sexual abuse and physical abuse was a real phenomenon and we hadn't recognized it and uh, we now know that unfortunately both child physical abuse and child sexual abuse is astonishingly common a very significant percentage of all children have had some kind of abusive experience and so when you go back and read those accounts of freud uh, it seems very likely that, that many of the patients that he thought were having infantile sexual fantasies had in fact been abused by adults. Uh, but, he, but it was simply impossible for him and for the respectable V&A's community to, to acknowledge that. So it's, it's sort of poignant, isn't it, to think of, of, of what was going on and yet we're, it's only very recently that we've been able to acknowledge the level of abuse that goes on among amongst uh, between adults and children 
Mm. And, and yeah, and, and you kind of feel very much if if Freud had been born a hundred years later and was presenting his initial theory in our kind of post-Savile world, people would have had um, much less difficulty accepting the idea that there was widespread um, wide, widespread abuse of, of children. And the whole theory of infantile sexuality and the Oedipal complex and penis envy and everything else might well never have been developed. So that's sex. Um, How do we understand where this suspicion around power is coming from? Well, power comes from a a different uh, historical background. And particularly, I think this is where the the figure of Nietzsche, the philosopher, the German philosopher Nietzsche, uh, a very complex and and tormented figure. But uh, to put it very crudely, Nietzsche starts a way of thinking which is then taken on by other thinkers, particularly uh, the French philosopher Michel Foucault, um, that power relations is the way to understand everything. So instead of sex you've got to think about power and 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 what uh, Nietzsche is saying is that in the end power is the only thing that matters all this thing about finding goodness and morality uh, finding truth and falsehood they're all ultimately about power they're defined by the powerful and Uh, Foucault says whenever somebody makes a truth claim, whenever they claim this is true, there's always a power relationship. They're always smuggling in because I am powerful. I have the right to say what is true. And when I claim something to be true, I'm actually making a claim to power. And these ideas, again, start off as a kind of esoteric philosophical theory. Uh, but then they gradually penetrate out into um, into secular culture. And, and, you know, many of us are aware of the whole phenomenon of, of the woke culture, which has just really emerged in the last few years. Uh, and that's a classic example of this kind of analysis, postmodern analysis, that says if you want to understand society, if you want to understand the relationships, you've got to see it in terms of power. Who are the powerful people? Who are the people who are being oppressed? Mm. I think I think that's really fascinating to me because uh, when you do read analysis of, of what is um, what is coming under the label of wokeism or whatever you want to call it, um, a lot of it is this idea of <clears throat> stripping away some of those kind of bourgeois liberal ideals about individuals and saying no no, it's all about systemic power structures and how in every society there are you know the oppressors and the oppressed and and whenever an oppressor says x or y is a is a virtuous act uh you you, you have to be in intensely suspicious if not outright dismissive uh because being for example for me you know a, a white cis heterosexual male i've got so much privilege and, and power that even if i wanted to try and, and be progressive and, and that kind of thing i am i am slightly constrained by my position and by having power over others so a lot of it is about trying to, to tilt the balance and create space for the oppressed and those who, who do not sit at the top of these overlapping indices of, of privilege and power to say you know, they have the right to decide what is virtuous, what is good, uh, what is moral and, and what is not. 
Absolutely. And and the problem with analysis in terms of power is that really the only response is revolution. So that those who are oppressed should now come out on top and become top dog. Um, the the idea of collaboration, of of harmony, of uh, is not really. Uh, I mean, it's naive. It's simplistic. It doesn't happen. There's always power. There's always going to be oppressors. There's always going to be the oppressed. And you know, if one just looks at American society in particular and the kind of polarization between right and left, um, it it is a desperate struggle for power. And 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 there are there are no there's no truck between trying to find compromise. It's simply a, a constant struggle as to who's going to come out on top. So this hermeneutic of suspicion is that the idea that that lying behind all friendships, all relationships, all human interaction, however benign or, or equal they might seem, um, the the actual forces that play behind them is is these complex things about about sex and power. <clears throat> but here's the problem, John. Uh, we began this podcast talking about Mark Driscoll and Ravi Zacharias, the the John Smythes, the Jonathan Fletchers. Don't these people all confirm that the hermeneutic of suspicion was right all along? You know, these these were people who were held up as as models of Christian witness and, and leadership, who were supposed to be demonstrating a, a different way of doing relationship and, with, and doing friendship with congregations, with their wives, with mentors, with younger people across the generations. And, and actually, it turns out we, we were lied to. Uh, there wasn't any kind of agape, self-giving, respectful love there. It was all actually about sex and power as well. Exactly. And I think that is exactly why these scandals are so profoundly damaging and corrosive, because it's like they just say, aha, we were right all along. You know, it's all about sex and power. Um, That's what all leaders are motivated by, is what they're constantly looking for. They're either looking for sexual gratification or they're looking for ways of abusing and dominating and oppressing the weak. And um, it... So, so these scandals just accentuate the whole cultural suspicion. Um, and my great concern is that, therefore, you know, Christians will conclude it's simply too dangerous, for instance, to have friendships between older men and younger women. It's all between older women and younger men, or between older men and younger men. Uh, you know, these, these, this is too dangerous. It's going to be misinterpreted. And the safest course is just to say you know, keep everyone at arm's length, you know, I'm allowed to be close to my wife, I'm allowed to be close to my children. And apart from that, you just keep just keep everyone at arm's length so that we couldn't be misinterpreted. And that idea, while it seems like quite a a modern idea, and I think there will be plenty of people who've adopted it in the kind of wake of these recent scandals is it's not actually totally new. I mean, the the Billy Graham rule, which is how he, he lived and how many other kind of male Christian leaders have also adopted, it says, you know, to, to never be alone in a room with a woman who's not your wife. And, and that's how Billy Graham lived his whole his whole ministry. It's down John Stott and many others as well. Uh, that fundamentally uh, comes from the same place, doesn't it? Well, it's extraordinary, isn't it? You know, because I've been reflecting on on this and on the scandals, particularly the Jonathan Fletcher scandals, which come which comes out of the Ewan camp. And the fascinating thing 
about that era and you know I've been reflecting on my friendship uh very close friendship with John Stott and and I'm aware that as soon as I talk about my friendship with John Stott and the fact that we spent many hours alone together and uh shared some deep intimate stuff immediately the hermeneutic of suspicion is active you know and, and what was going on there and was Stott abusing Wyatt or was he trying to exert power and manipulate him was so, Wyatt trying to exploit Scott you know to uh, to build his, his burgeoning help build his burgeoning Christian punditry career <laughs> yes quite thanks very much but um yeah and, and of course that's that's absolutely that's how the hermeneutic of suspicion works um, and what struck, strikes me about that generation and I think you know you said it exactly about Billy Graham is that although they were completely obsessed about any hint of heterosexual impropriety, when it came to the possibility of homosexual same-sex attraction, they were seemed to be completely heedless. I mean, Stott didn't was not at all concerned about um, being alone with with young men. As, uh, sometimes when he was travelling, he even shared bedrooms with them. Apparently, and and and, and this was nobody raised an eyebrow and or even thought how it might appear. And yet they came out of a public school culture where it was well known that homoerotic behaviour, you know, was taking place in some of the schools. And uh, so it's not as though they were unaware of the possibility of same-sex attraction. And that's what seems remarkable when you look look back on, as you say, they had a a laser focus on affairs. Uh, You know, I think that, that came from a good place. I mean, when Billy Graham made his famous rule at the start of his ministry in in the early 1950s, I think there had actually just been several um, famous early kind of televangelists or um, tra- traveling kind of gospel ministers who who had had affairs and, and kind of ruined their ministries and, and besmirched the gospel. And and sadly, even to this day, you know, we know it's it's not uncommon for for men for Christian leaders to to have affairs uh, with people who are not their wives. Um, but given that they came from this this British upper-class, public school, kind of muscular Christianity world, uh, I do find it remarkable that they didn't consider that to be something to be aware of, you know, you know the possibility of, of same-sex issues, uh, particularly between kind of older and, and younger men. And, and I think there was a level of naivety in that they, I think, believed, I think people like Stott and others would believe that it was simply unconscionable that a Christian leader might abuse his position, even if he was uh, same-sex attracted, um, and therefore there was no need to make put in special safeguards. And I think, you know, now knowing what we know, that seems extraordinarily naive and, and heedless. So what are we kind of con- concluding here? I mean, you seem to be saying that the hermeneutic of suspicion is bad, but that also we probably need a little bit more of it in church. Yes, well, I, I think we can't unlearn what we've learned, and nor should we, or, or try to ignore it. And, and of course, we must remember that what the abuse scandals have demonstrated is the terrible level of damage that abuse from Christian leaders, the permanent damage that it causes to 
other people, particularly two people, young Christians and and others who've been influenced by their ministry. And one of the really interesting but tragic aspects of the Mars Hill podcast, isn't it, is is the way that the um, the journalists, the investigators, they seem they want to be honest about the fact that Mark Driscoll and and the Mars Hill Church, you know, that there was obvious genuine spiritual impact on people's lives. Uh, positive impact and yet at the same time uh, when the whole thing sort of auto-destructs because of Mark Driscoll's behaviour that many people who've been deeply influenced by him end up as spiritual casualties with deeply hurt and and traumatised because of their experiences. And this is the really tragic, tragic part of when you read some of the, the stories from the victims and survivors of those names that we talked about who were instrumental in, in exposing them by, by bravely com- coming forward and telling their own stories at a huge personal cost. It's had a devastating impact on a lot of people who are, who are victims of abusive Christian leaders. They end up, you know, losing their faith. And, and who can blame them? You know, when, when the person who was supposed to be loving them as God does ends up actually hurting them. Um, I guess another, and another complicated issue is it also has an effect on everyone who ever looked up to them, you know, who put Jonathan Fletcher or, or Rabbi Zacharias on a pedestal and said that that's an example of what I want to aim for. Or, or they've taught me in a remarkable way about, about who God is and, and what it means to follow him. And suddenly it's kind of so complex when, when it turns out actually they're, they're not the person that you thought they were. Yes, and so I think one of the obvious take-home messages from all this is that we've really got to avoid the pedestal syndrome, which which seems to be very, very strong in so many churches, this desire to put one or few people in some very exalted position. We treat them with exaggerated respect. We regard them as uh, having a very, very profound spiritual authority, and yet, as soon as uh, any kind of scandal breaks, then immediately they they're then cast into outer darkness. We eradicate their books from our shelves. We uh, remove them from the internet. Uh, they're they they're non persons. There's a, a very black and white uh, approach, which and of course reality is much more complex and nuanced than that. I mean, I think you've said this before, and I think it's right. One of the besetting sins of evangelicalism is this insistence on making everything black and white, and everything falls into the category of good, sound, or true, or it must be bad, unsound, and, and untrue. And, and we've been discovering, like like many things in life, people can't so easily be categorised like that. You know, you know. I mean, I I've, I've read a book by by Mark Driscoll, which at the time I I found it really good and helpful exposition about the theology of the cross. You know, should should I burn that book now or or expunge it from my memory because I, I kind of now understand what a what a narcissistic bullying character he was. You know, I don't know. I mean, obviously it certainly colours how I would read the book again, but. I'm not sure we need to throw the baby out with the bathwater and, and say he was a bad man and therefore everything he did was also bad and he was never really a Christian anyway and, and everyone who has been impacted by him needs to kind of expunge him from their soul. Yeah, so I think what we need to do is first of all be much more careful about how we choose our leaders and as so often what's happened in the recent Christian history is is leaders have been selected and come to prominence because of their gifts, 
their vision, their ability to persuade people, their ability to raise money, and so on. And that's absolutely clear about Mark Driscoll. He was clearly a very gifted, very charismatic in the non-spiritual sense, um, able to sway thousands of people by his oratory and so on. And yet... It's clear. I mean, he was a very young. He was had obvious character flaws. He was a deeply damaged person. And it's very interesting, as it's often been said, that that in the New Testament, the criteria for leaders is almost entirely based on character, not on giftedness. I mean, the emphasis in selecting leaders is all about character, and and I think we need to re rediscover that and put much more emphasis on character and on assessing people's character and, and looking for evidence of, of maturity and, and, and identifying character flaws rather than being bamboozled by people who are astonishingly gifted. Yeah, and I think for me, that's one of the big takeaways from, from the Mars Hill podcast, uh, the idea that people were kind of blinded by his his charisma and his gifting, but he actually lacked the integrity and, and what we need first and foremost uh, in our leaders is character and, and kind of gifting, because it's, it's secondary to that. Um, so just as we kind of move towards a, a kind of final thought, uh, what we're saying, I, I guess, is that absolutely we, we can't and we don't want to unlearn what we've learned. Uh, we definitely need to be a lot wiser and, and less complacent than early generations. But but uh, but you would be very reluctant to go further than that and, and, and to be saying cross-generational or, or even cross-gender friendships are just, are just too difficult or risky and we should just steer away from them entirely within church. Absolutely. In fact, I want to do quite the reverse. I want to encourage people, particularly older people, uh, to go out of their way to be developing uh, cross-generational friendships with with younger people, uh, very much as a two-way process of both giving and learning. Uh, but we need to teach people about friendship. We need to teach people about what the warning signs are, where where it becomes abusive. One of the fascinating things to me that came out of the Mars Hill um, podcast is how frequently uh, Mark Driscoll insisted on utter loyalty from his team and from his church members and it was reiterated unless you are totally loyal to me uh, then you're you're out I'm not interested and and that should have been a massive red flag I mean any leader who insists on complete and utter loyalty uh, should immediately raise question marks and um, and the same was true about Jonathan Fletcher apparently it's, it's reported again that he insisted on complete and utter loyalty from the people that lived for him and 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 then the question is, well, why is that? Because of concern that that um, they will see flaws in the character and their behaviour, and this will then uh, ruin their image. So, and I think there are other red flags as well, which we need to educate people that that about the ways that friendship go wrong. But that doesn't mean that friendship itself between generations is wrong or dangerous, and quite the reverse. And, and so trying to find healthy ways of, 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 of building healthy, transformative friendships that are mutually giving, that are not based on sex and power. They don't have to be. They can be based on, on love and self-sacrifice. And, and what I think of uh, as, as the logic of the gospel, the, the fact that the gospel is based on the breaking down of barriers, on self-giving 
to the other on respect, on honesty, on openness and on love. And there's just so much more we we could say, you know, about what true Christian friendship looks like outside of the hermeneutic of suspicion. And I guess... um, we're probably gonna we're gonna hope to come back to that in a in a further podcast. You're you're obviously still researching and, and writing this book on friendship, so there's going to be loads of material you'll want to share. And I think it's an important topic that, that we should come back to. I mean, it's it's such a big theme in the New Testament. Jesus talks about how I, I no longer call you servants, but friends. And and greater love has no one than he that he lays down his life for his friends. And there's a real theme of friendship there, which I think we often skate over. And, we talk about being brothers and sisters and use kind of the, f- the familial family metaphor. But actually, the language of friendship is, is really central to the gospel. Yeah. And so the real challenge for us as 21st century Christians is how can we reimagine friendship in the light of all this hermeneutic of suspicion, in the light of these terrible scandals? How can we reimagine Christian friendship in a way that is true to the gospel, that is true to the spirit and 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 yet which is aware of the the risks and the dangers which we now are so painfully aware so so i i hope that um you know we can carry on the conversation i hope maybe that some people who are listening to this podcast will will uh, will respond and and we can be all part of this conversation as we try to work out how friendship can be reimagined as we look into the future Definitely, definitely. Well, let's just draw it to a, to a close there. Matt. Just a quick reminder that if you if you would like to get in touch with us, uh, you can just send us an email. It's um, it's matters of life and death podcast at gmail.com. And um, yeah, I'm looking forward to speaking to you again soon, John. Great. Thanks very much. That's it for this episode of Matters of Life and Death. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do share it with friends or on social media. It can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or all other major podcast apps. As always, don't forget to check out John's website, which has plenty more resources to read, listen to, and watch on lots of the things that we've talked about in the podcast and much more besides. You can find it at johnwyatt.com. That's J-O-H-N-W-Y-A-T-T.com. And if for some reason you'd even like to follow me online, I'm at T.S. Wyatt on Twitter, and you can find some of my journalism at tswyatt.com. You can get in touch with us by emailing mattersoflifeanddeathpodcast at gmail.com, or just send me a tweet. We're always keen to hear from listeners, especially if you have a question to ask, a topic you'd like us to explore, or a news development to respond to. The music in the show is, as always, by Daniel Birch. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you again next time.